Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Oh, here are some things that are going on today. We're going to be talking about socializing chocolate. What happens if you take the means of production of chocolate and actually give them to some of the people that grow chocolate? That's... You may think like, oh, they should have that stuff already. No, nope. a lot, a lot of grow, chocolate growers do not have any way to turn it into chocolate. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk to Wayne Kostrowski, local hero. Uh, he's got a new hunger-related charity. We'll find out about that. It's bringing golf into fighting hunger. I approve of that. Um, I'm also going to be at the Boy of Liquor. I'll be at the liquor store, Liquor Boy, uh, from 1 to 3 today. That's the one in St. Louis Park, right next to the Home Depot and the Costco. This is my last one before the summer starts, so if you need help picking out wine, need help getting something for Dad for Father's Day, come on by. I'll be there from 1 to 3. And if you've got questions, text us. I am very Always very happy, happy, happy. You know I want to know uh, what you want to talk about in the Ask Me Anything segment of the show. So that's what we're doing today. It's going to be chocolate and golf and wine and all the fun things. So sit on down. Pour yourself a cup of tea. All right. First off, we've got uh, Colin Gasco on the line. So Rogue Chocolate is very lovely. It's my favorite ever chocolate company. It makes bean-to-bar production. Started here in northeast Minneapolis, moved to Massachusetts, and, and I was quite shocked to learn that Colin is shutting it down, but he's got a lot of good reasons, I assume, or I think so. It's a, we'll get into it. Colin, welcome to the show. Hi, Dara. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah. So what is going on, my friend? You are shutting down Rogue Chocolate. That's right. Yes, we um, we're at an impasse in terms of the the business, and so we're trying to see if we can build a different future for our knowledge and our equipment. And, All right. Uh, so, what do you mean you're at an impasse? I feel like you know, specialty chocolate is just grown so much. You know, we see these very expensive bars, and you had I feel like you had a waiting list, and people were just dying to get your product all the time. How is this, po- like, you were at an impasse in terms of you're not profitable as a chocolate company anymore? Oh, well, I mean, we've never been profitable. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, but, yeah, we, we we just have cash flow issues right now. Um, and that combined with uh, just uh, my feelings about, what we're doing, I feel like it's it's time for for a change, and we need to use our uh, abilities to produce a more equitable and sustainable outcome. All right, so let's talk about that because I kind of follow you on Twitter, and I'm aware of you know you've kind of been bubbling with ideas about global warming as a problem, uh, power imbalances, uh, or between the people that make the products and people that consume the products are all out of whack. 
Uh, so let's just kind of go piece by piece through this. For people that don't know, let's just do a basic chocolate 101. Chocolate can't grow it on in a farm field in Iowa. Where does where does chocolate come from? Well, generally, um, chocolate or uh, cocoa, sometimes it's referred to on the commodity level, or the plant itself is called cacao. Um, is grown about within a range of about 20 degrees of the equator. So sort of the, the upper north of uh, cacao growing would be in uh, Hawaii. And the sort of the far south is sort of uh, Madagascar, I would say. Okay, so in this band right around the equator, yep. I think most people probably know at this point that it originally came from uh, Mexico slash Central America, where the Aztecs were a big part of of culture and life um, in that in that part of the world, and um, and so that's where it grows today. But it even though we up here are paying you know forty bucks for a big Toblerone, that money is not making it to the people that grow it. Is that basically the idea? Right. Yeah. So the center of genetic diversity for cacao is um, Peru, and somehow humans over a period of time would have brought it up from Peru towards Central America, and that's sort of the cultural uh, center of diversity, and that's what the Spaniards would have encountered when they arrived. Um, there is, you know, a long history of power imbalance. I mean, even going back to the Maya, of course, there was there part of the culture was. Uh, imbalanced with the production of cacao, but uh, certainly the Europeans adopted it as a way of uh, extracting value from Central America. And then, of course, it has a long uh, history in uh, colonial uh, processes, and and that's really the whole history of of how cacao production was expanded. And uh, consequently, it it has corresponding power imbalances. As okay, well, let's just pause yeah. for a second. So I, I, you taught me personally how, you know, chocolate is made. And so you get these little, they call them, uh, what do you call them, nibs, cacao nibs. You get kind of look like little, like jo- large, large coffee beans. What are those things called? Yeah, so, uh, well, I'll start. So cacao comes in a pod that's about uh, football size. It has some seeds inside of it, which are covered in mucilage. It goes through a long uh, curing and fermentation process, which is fairly involved. And then you have these seeds, which have a, uh, a hull on the outside. That's if you've ever used hull in your garden. That's the waste product. And once you break open the seeds and remove the hull, you have what's called nib, which is the, uh, the cotyledon of the seed. Um, and that is then ground down into something equivalent to like a peanut butter, and that's we call that uh, cocoa liquor. Okay, but it has to be really fine. Like, this is something, I mean, like, you could do it at home if you're kind of a molecular geneticist kind of person. But, like, you can't really do this at home. It's it The particles have to be, I forget what it is, like some number of microns, a very small number, right? So, really, you have to have industrial machinery. And they only figured out how to make chocolate into a chocolate bar was it, in the 19th century. Yes, yeah, so... Uh- Chocolate, eating chocolate as we consume it today, chocolate was always a drink until the late, uh, primarily always a drink until the the late 19th century when uh, lint would have developed the conch, which was basically a grinder was left on for too long, and that also had corresponding textural and flavor changes. So generally, chocolate has been very uh, uh, technical and very much in line with uh, industrialization uh, in the the 20th century. 
in the early part of this century, there were some developments. People discovered that you could use these little Indian wet grinders as a way of making a little bit of chocolate in your kitchen. There's limitations on quality, but that is something where people are experimenting not only here, but actually all around the world right now. And there's a bit of a small batch revolution in, in terms of uh, even in farming communities where people are making stuff in their kitchen in very small quantities uh, and then maybe selling in their local markets. So that's a, a newer development, but it's happening. Okay. So the traditional structure was people were growing it close to the equator, loading it into cargo, you know, cargo ships. It would end up in Switzerland. Everybody knows Swiss chocolate or Belgium or somewhere like that. And then that's where the industrial factories were, where they could turn it into uh, a Toblerone. Is that basically how it used to be or how it has been until what, I guess, how it is till today? Right. So you have, you have very, you have a traditional pattern of production of the raw agricultural material um, uh, where it's then processed in uh, the, traditionally the, the colonial countries or you know, the, the West, and then it's also primarily consumed by, say, the U.S. Or, or Europe. So Okay, and so then you have been in this, you know, so you, you entered into this world, you made some of the first bean-to-bar uh, chocolates that I'm aware of, and so that's when everything's not blended up, but it's kept separate so you can you can taste the terroir, you can taste the, the exact feel, the farm, the kind of the individual characteristics of the area. So you entered into chocolate and you were kind of on the bleeding edge of this whole bean-to-bar movement, but it feels like to me, just reading your Twitter, over the years, you have become disenchanted with this traditional model of factories in the north, producers in the south. Yeah, I think that's accurate. So we were part of a vanguard in 2007, which uh, you helped write about. And uh, there was Scharfenberger in the 90s. And then, of course, you know, chocolate has been made this whole time. But there hasn't been a small batch tradition uh, since before the 20th century. And uh, yeah, so there there are, are problems. You know, we craft chocolate in the United States the way that the model that I have been part of um, has not solved these problems of inequalities, both power inequalities and the distribution of values. So typically what we do, we work with high-end raw materials to make really fancy, delicious chocolate. And so we're able to pay more for the raw materials, and that has the potential to improve farmer outcomes. However, it doesn't actually meaningfully shift the total portion of value that is staying in countries. And it also, you know, it perpetuates this, this continued power and balance between uh, cocoa cons- chocolate consuming countries and producing countries. So you kind of just feel like even though a bunch of us are paying a lot of money for some chocolate bars, it's, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. Is that? Well, I don't want to say that it has it can have positive impacts it varies and even just because you pay more doesn't necessarily mean that it will have a, a positive impact so it's it's of course like everything else more complicated than that my my critique is just that it doesn't solve some of these fundamental problems and um along with that our particular very small batch style it's very material intensive it's extremely energy intensive and with what's happening with the climate crisis and the, the changes that need to happen, I, I simply cannot, I can't continue on right right now, you know, so it's, it's, I can't keep doing it. 
Well, why don't you tell me a little about that? So you feel like environmentally the way we do chocolate now is not not good. Well, it varies. So industrial chocolate um, generally is pretty uh, efficient. Um, it, it it has these power imbalances which are not solved, and there's there's a, a been a great move to producing value added products uh, in cocoa producing countries. So, for example, the largest grinder of cocoa beans in the world right now is Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa. So, however. Basically, all that production is done by uh, foreign corporations operating in uh, tax-free zones in highly automated facilities with, you know, four or five employees or something like that, you know, and they're processing hundreds of thousands of tons or huge, huge quantities. So they're, um, they're not really retaining more value. There's some environmental properties for that. But what I do with really, like, intensive hands-on work, um, the fact that, because of our difficulty being able to find housing and stuff. I mean, I've been commuting 40,000 miles a year for the last six years. So, um, why wait in Massachusetts? Because there's no, because what, what's going on? Why are you commuting 40,000 miles a year? Ha- housing is expensive. So I live with my parents and I drive an hour, you know, 60 miles both ways every single day of the year. Oh gosh. And then we have a 2,400 square foot facility. That's, heated by burning oil and we make you know at most a thousand bars a month and so it's incredibly energy inefficient um both in terms of how i transit and live and how my particular factory works and then we ship everything out in uh, via airmail because we it's the best way we're able to get the margins that we need to, to operate so you know, it's all going out via airmail usps where maybe twice as much ice as there is chocolate, um, tons of plastic, all sorts of stuff like that. So I, I just I can't justify that with where we're at. Hmm. Well, I know there's many an entrepreneur listening who feels a chill because that's a when you're making an amazing product that people love, uh, you know, you, you've done so much work and then to kind of look at it all and say, well, I don't like this business model anymore. Um, that's got to be that's just hard. I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it is an existential crisis. <laughs> okay, and so you've decided to you've got a tell everybody what was your solution to this existential crisis? Well, the the solution that I've been able to come up with is we're doing a crowdfunding campaign right now. Uh, we're going to be closing, but we want to engineer a gradual close so that we can finish out the obligations that we're able to. And then we will be transferring our equipment and our knowledge base, that is skills, uh, proprietary information, um, all that, to a producer in a uh, cocoa-producing country um, with some farmer equity stake improvements. So uh, we are in the process of uh, vetting uh, various parties and finding who exactly it's going to go to, and we're in the process of fundraising to make that move happen to sort of pre-liquidate our uh, equipment and have this transfer so that uh, production can be more equitable and sustainable. So interesting. So you want to take your whole you're not you're you've agreed to put in you know hundreds of hours of your time for free, right. and then you want to just basically take everything in your twenty four hundred square foot factory and move it to somewhere where they grow cacao. You bet. Yep. So uh, either an established cooperative, or if there's a private party and they want to have some. Uh, uh, equity arrangements with farmer groups. So, all right. Well, um, 
we have the link to this. It's a GoFundMe. I will tweet it out uh, from on my account, uh, Dear Dara, and we'll, I'll put it on my Facebook page, Dara.Grumdahl. And what's the response you're getting to this uh, this effort to, to just kind of give up rogue chocolate and move it somewhere to have a new journey? Well, I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's a little out of left field for some people. It seems like, wow, this is kind of, I've never heard of anything like this before, mm-hmm. um, which honestly is one of the things that's intriguing about it to me. But generally, the response has been positive and people understand uh, why would we, we would make this move, especially, you know, academics who study this stuff or people in the industry who, uh, some, some people in the industry, some people are not happy with my critique of craft chocolate. <laughs> um, yeah, your your positive. critique is that it's environmentally overly intensive and not good for the planet or the growers. What? Well, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that all craft chocolate has to be that way. I'm saying mm-hmm. that the way that we function as a company can't go on. Um, there there may be other models that work in this uh, context, and maybe they'll find other ways of changing power dynamics. Uh, but currently, those things are not really being addressed, and they they need to be. All right. Um, well, world, if you want to be part of this, if you have advice, if you have an idea, if you want to give up, give some money, reach out to Colin Gasco. I have tweeted it. It is I am at Dear Dara, and you will see that. You can also find him at Rogue Chocolate. Colin, this is very brave of you. Thank you for uh, talking to us about this. I I know this is a kind of a death of a dream for you. And I'm, I'm really grateful for all the fantastic chocolate that you have made. And I appreciate your, your ethical stance. Well, thank you, Dara. It's been a great honor to be on your show today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. All right, everybody. That's kind of a bummer, but what are we going to do? I don't know. All right. All right. You have a good day now. You too. Take care. All right. Take care. All right. So that is uh, Colin Gasco. I have tweeted out he's trying to move his chocolate company, Rogue Chocolate, into the hands of a developing nation, uh, you know, chocolate growers. Um, We're going to have a lot more uh, issues like this, I think, coming up with global warming and climate change and everything that's happening. We uh, are going to have to change some systems. I was down in the southwestern corner of the state, uh, Pipestone, recently, and I was delighted and shocked to see how many windmills are there now. I mean, it's it's just astonishing. And so, you know, some of this transformation um, is happening and we're not talking about it. And some of it, I guess, was dark and difficult. We're going to have to talk about it. And this is one of them. Uh, so my favorite chocolatier is going under. If you want to help them transfer that factory uh, to to the means of production, Check out my Twitter, at Dear Dara. You can see that, or my Facebook, and you find the link, and it's uh, certainly interesting. All right, we'll get more. Uh, we'll be back with Wayne Kostrowski and finding out about raising money for hunger relief through golf when we come back. All right, Dara here. We're going to flip around the script a bit. We're going to do our rhubarb recipes now. All right, what do you do? What is your favorite rhubarb? I know, I know that... Already, half of you are like, pie, only pie. Another bunch of you are saying, cobbler, only cobbler. Well, I don't know. I got my top five rhubarb recipes. My own rhubarb crop has been quite bountiful this year. I don't know how things are going by you. But, uh, all right, so my top five, they're on the WCCO website right now, WCCORadio.com. All right, so... 
rhubarb pie straight up. I don't think that everything rhubarb should be. I don't think you need rhubarb custard, rhubarb sour cream, rhubarb, all these things. No, I think you can just go for a very intense, concentrated lot of rhubarb. So I have a rhubarb straight up. If you've never had it, if you only had rhubarb kind of in a mix, try it. I think you should. This is the year. All right, so rhubarb cake is turning into kind of a thing. All the hipsters are making different rhubarb cakes because they got to be different. There's a really nice one, though. It's a rhubarb custard cake, so it's a little creamy. It's good. Now, for all of you who are thinking, I already know pie and cake. You didn't need to tell me that. Here, rhubarb lentil soup. So, you know, you look at rhubarb, you think, that's not that doesn't look like a peach or a pear. That's not a fruit. And you are right. It is a petiole, a stem. <laughs> That's what it is. Like celery. We eat a few a few stems in our life, celery and rhubarb. And you can use it like a vegetable um, if you want to. So I've got a great recipe for a rhubarb lentil soup. So it takes that sour of the rhubarb, mix it in with the lentils. It's nice. You cut a you put some chives from the garden on top of this. Very good. All right, so in the Middle East, they eat a rhubarb differently than we do in the North. Um, and I've got this great recipe. So Michael Salam- Salamanov, we've had him on the show a few times, uh, but he makes a, a braised lamb shanks with peas, mint, garlic, and, yes, rhubarb. I've got the recipe up for that. It's very, very nice. you got a birthday coming up. Maybe you want to make something special for Dad for tomorrow for Father's Day. This is a good recipe. And it is at WCCORadio.com. And my last thing, and you know this is my favorite thing to do, just a rhubarb syrup. It is the easiest thing to do. You're just chopping up your rhubarb, putting it in a pot with sugar, cooking it, and you'll end up with a simple syrup. You strain out the solids. You can eat the solids too. You can spread them on a, a, spread them on a cracker um, or, or a piece of bread. That's nice. But you can then take that syrup and you can... Pour it on waffles. You can make lemonade with it. You can put it in salad dressing. You could do anything. A rhubarb simple syrup is a great, easy, wonderful thing. It keeps for quite a while. It's a beautiful pink color. I cannot say enough good things about it. And if uh, you want to look at a recipe, then you should go to WCCORadio.com. All right, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back, hopefully, and talk to Wayne about raising hunger for through golf. Dara here. When I'm not writing about restaurants for Minneapolis-St. Paul magazine, I'm generally just being a fan of Wayne Kostrowski, right? So he's been a, a pillar of the Minnesota restaurant scene for years. He was involved in Tejas, and then he went on to found Franklin Street Bakery, uh, I've been enjoying his burger <laughs> buns that they make at Franklin Street Bakery at Bandbox Diner. Oh, gosh, they're good. Um, and he founded Taste of the NFL, which has raised millions and millions of dollars to fight hunger because for those of us who have so much, we really need to share with those of those are hungry. Uh, there's so much hunger in this country. It's, it's just appalling. And so Wayne's got a new idea. He's got a new hunger fighting initiative called Taste for the Tour. And that four is spelled like the golf kind, F-O-R-E. Uh, it's gonna, the first one is being held July 1st at Interlochen. 
Got a bunch of really big-name chefs involved because everybody loves Wayne. And now we're going to find out some details. Wayne, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, morning. It's always good to talk with you and, you know, talk about what's going on in the Twin Cities and food scene. All right. Tell me, you're taking your – you've had so much success with Taste of the NFL. Actually, do you have an update for us? How are things going? I'm at, I think that it went really well after the Super Bowl, right? Yeah, Atlanta was a good uh, – a very good performance. That's a very good food town. Uh, as we say with Taste of the NFL, that's the event that's Super Bowl, the only one that beats with food. So even when you've got 40 chefs and you know got a lot of players, but people are coming there to enjoy the, the food. And Atlanta was good. Minnesota still stands out. It was uh, the record year when it was here, and thanks to all the Minnesotans that came out to finally see what the, that phenomenon was about for 27 years. So we're on our 29th year down in South Florida, and Don Shula, the legendary coach, is our honorary chair, and Andrew Zimmers, who, he's still on my board, so Andrew is – uh, the culinary host down there, and our Florida culinary host is Adam Richmond. So, oh, uh, cool. and Ben Lieber is going to be the player. So we're we're pulling in folks from all over the country because they want to be involved with that, and that uh, you know kind of spurs up when a major sporting event comes up. Uh, we've done a taste event at the Kentucky Derby, at uh, the college football playoffs. We even have done it a few years down at the Masters. So when uh, Hollis Kavner and his wonderful team at the 3M uh, Senior uh, Championship had the opportunity to bid on a major PGA tournament here. I knew he'd jump on it. So I talked to him uh, very early on about a year ago now and said, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's add something on beginning of the week and let's make a new Minnesota legacy uh, and uh, raise money for hunger before the tournament even starts. And so he enthusiastically has been supporting this, just uh, getting the word around. We're, we're excited that it's going to happen. And, uh, it's going to be an annual event here, and potentially already some other PGA Tour stops are asking, uh, in, uh, you know, if if we'd consider doing it in their town. And as long as all the money goes to hunger relief in that community where the event takes place, we'll do it. But Minnesota is going to set the bar again, Dara. This is going to be a heck of an event. <laughs> all right. So tell. So kind of. All right, so you go to you went to the three the people that are starting this new golf event, and you said let's get something kind of backloaded a couple days before, and it's a chance for people to meet the golfers. Tell me what what is the event that tastes for the four? Well, ours is not. I mean, we're, we're some of the golfers might show up. Uh, they, they've got an open invitation, and but they've got other things going on, and sometimes they don't come in until Tuesday. But the, we, we might get some golfers at the event, but. Uh, we we're leading with uh, Mr. Golf Legend, Sir Nick Faldo, and um, Nick and I did a thing on CBS in May from his, his broadcast. On his, we did something at his house in his kitchen, and uh, he, he's uh, he's really locked and loaded on this thing. We we want to do these things together, and he's uh, his huge philanthropic uh, push is uh, building golf courses where people you know where they aren't and not not to make money but to get younger golfers interested in playing and allow them to play so uh he's a very charitable guy i've gotten to know him pretty well and he's a really good guy and so we're very fortunate to get you know sir nick faldo to headline this thing and and then andrew uh and mark haugen uh they're they're teaming up to get the chefs and it's Anybody who has ever had a meal in the Twin Cities knows the name of Gavin Kaysen, Jamie Malone, Thomas Bamer, and Diane Mao. Uh, that's who's feeding you that evening. So uh, it, it's still it's it's related to a golf event coming, but again, it's going to lead with food. 
And uh, I, I tell you, you won't you won't eat a better meal in the Twin Cities certainly that night and maybe all year long. So that's going to be. <laughs> it is cool. a very impressive. So so people come, they get to go to this dinner and kind of hobnob with people that care about golf and care about hunger. Is that the? Yeah, it, but you know, we what what I wanted to make this very Minnesotan, and so this is not a stroll around; it's a sit down. So when you have you purchased a sponsorship or a table. Your, you and your guests at that table are going to have one of the Minnesota uh, uh, athlete icons. We've got everything, you know, uh, Matt Burke is the MC, Ben Lieber is going to do the auction, Michelle Tapoy is going to introduce the celebrities. Uh, and then, you know, someone's going to be sitting at your table as anyone from uh, Ken Herbeck, Joe Maurer, uh, Randall McDaniel, um, uh, yeah, uh, Lou Nanny, Devin Dubnik, Jason Zucker. So we're covering all the sports. So this is not a, uh, you know, football or one sport event. It's kind of showing off um, the legends of Minnesota, including, I'm frankly, what I'm very excited about is Ron Scherer is going to join us as well in his daughter, Laura. And, you know, so we're, we're covering not just uh, on the field stuff, but in the field stuff and in the woods and on the stream. So someone will be at your table. Uh, if you've purchased a sponsorship or if you've purchased a full table. And so we're we're very excited about it. I will say, um, this is a good thing. Uh, we sold out uh, oh. a couple days ago. And so, but let me, let me encourage everybody listening to go to tasteforthetour.com. Mm-hmm. As you aptly said, it, it, it is golf, so it's F-O-R-E. Um, and click on the tee off against hunger button. And what it is, is we want to raise as much money as we can, since we're sold out, on that website uh, before the event takes place. And our goal is to raise $50,000. Now, if, if not, not everybody listening is going to, I'm not looking for a big number, you know, $10, $20, whatever. But also, if you donate $78, then you're eligible to win two tickets to the event. Uh, so you can attend as well. But the reason $78 is deep is able to feed uh, a person uh, for a full year, a meal a day oh, wow. uh, on that $78. So no amount is too small. So I'd really encourage people to go uh, click on that tea against tea off against hunger button. And you still, still can be part of the team. And, you know, Tradition Capital Bank's the presenting sponsor. Ecolab is sponsoring the chefs. God bless them. They were also the chef sponsor at the Taste of the NFL when it was in Minnesota. And uh, we're, we've got a lot of fun things going on. As a matter of fact, just yesterday, um, the, 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 this, this won't be announced publicly, but to you it will be, for mm-hmm. your listeners. If someone is has playing a round of golf with Sir Nick Faldo on their bucket list, I have a few slots made available. Nick is willing to play golf that next morning uh, for a donation. So I'm going to give you my you and everybody listening my cell number. If someone's interested in learning more about playing a round of golf with Sir Nick and with Matt Burke the next day at Interlock and Country Club, oh my. with all the money going, adding to the total, they can uh, text 612-237-6527, and I'll, I'll get back to him today or tomorrow because that's going to go pretty quickly. But li- literally, it has not been announced anywhere else. So, see, you're in the Nice. Well, thank you. Usual, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Is it? Uh, we have your permission to repeat that because I know that's the phone's going to now be ringing off the hook. Well, absolutely. I I even paid my phone bill early, and uh, <laughs> you know it'll definitely, and I'll definitely call you back. That's for sure. But uh, 
Listen, I, I really appreciate what you, I mean, your, your thing earlier about chocolates and everything else. You, you're, I love that you do something other than say, you know, this meal at such and such is really good. Uh, and I, I think your sidekick on Thursdays, uh, Chad, uh, <laughs> that, that, is, that is good stuff uh, because uh, I, I love the poking that you've got going back and forth. And uh, you know, <laughs> him claiming to know that much about food. I've seen him on the golf course, too. He's, he's better on the golf course than he is, I think, in, you know judging food so oh really I, I love your show <laughs> from the standpoint you're doing things that we all need to hear that you know we didn't even know we're supposed to learn something about so thank you for that oh well thank you sir and thanks for listening and thanks for getting this new thing going i you have made such a difference in the world you have raised i just my mind boggles when i think about how much you have done for hungry people in this country and uh, that you're kind of finding a new way to do it. I just, I am just grateful and I applaud you. So thank you. Well, thank you. But, you know, I, all I do is stir the pot. (laughs) There's so many people that volunteer, all these players, all the chefs, everybody, any event we do, they all volunteer. And and as we do a a little core people that uh, coordinate all these things to get them going. But, you know, it, it, uh, it, it doesn't take much to change someone else's life. And it, 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 together, you can change a lot more lives. So, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, kind of getting getting in someone's face and, you know, making a pitch and finding out that, geez, maybe maybe we should do things like this. So if, as long as anybody wants to help out someone else in any way in their own neighborhood, that's what we're trying to do is just encourage people, look, you, you can help other people just by you know, stepping up without a check, without doing an event, whatever, just say, hey, I want to help you. What can I do? Yeah, it makes it makes a huge difference. It makes life feel much more uh, manageable, too. Doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. All right. Wayne Kostrowski. Thank you, everybody. I am going to tell you it is at taste for like golf, F-O-R-E, taste for the tour dot com. You want to find out about that? Or if you just want to text Wayne personally and find out about playing this Private round of golf at 612-237-6527. Wayne, you are so brave. Just give out your cell phone. People are going to be... Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a lonely guy. You know, <laughs> Not for long. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All well, right. Well, thank much. you, sir. And by the way, one of the things, uh, if somebody checks out Continental Diamond, they have a great thing that they're doing to help raise money for this. All the money goes to Deep, too. So they're, they're a great partner as well, along with Tradition Capital Bank. But uh, everybody can help. So thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. We're going to take a little break here. When we come back, we'll have the Ask Me Anything part of the show. You got some questions? Uh, text us. We are. I'm up on the text line right now. Um, it is the 651-229 of... Oof, my computer just froze up all of a sudden. Um Anyway, you you must know the number by now. Uh, and I will get back to you or 81807. And uh, we'll get the X me anything part of the show when we come back. Oh, Dara here. All right. So I don't know how I forgot this text line. I have been sick all week. Isn't it lousy to have a cold in the spring? Uh, it happens, I guess. All right. So 651-989-9226. Um, I've got the text line open. I got a question. Strawberry rhubarb sauce for angel food cake. Yeah, that's just a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Strawberry rhubarb sauce on cake, on ice cream, put it on sorbet, uh, just all the good things. Yes, I can't say enough good things about that. Hmm, I got a question about my favorite White Castle slider. 
my friend. I have not been to White Castle in a long time. Uh, I think White Castle is a late night destination for me. And I've not been having a lot of fun since I had kids. I'm home in bed, getting people into bedtime. I need to get my game up. I did. I have had the sliders at Manny's. Very halladida. Those are good. So I don't know. Let's put it on the list of things to get to. All right. I got a question about uh, toddler food. So someone's got a niece coming to their barbecue. They don't have kids. This kid is 14 months old. And what are you supposed to serve? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think that 14 months old, they could just eat whatever's around. They will eat you know, just gum on a chip. A 14-month-old is a person who has a couple of teeth and a lot of things going on in their gums and is, you know, they're, you don't need to really worry about it. They'll gum a carrot. They'll gum a piece of bread. Uh, they may enjoy gumming a, a pork rib bone. So I wouldn't worry about it. Toddlers are not... Uh, they they do not need special diets. And if they do need special diets, they typically come. People are always packing stuff. You've got a toddler, then you typically have a bag, which contains a lot of food for them because they're like a grenade that could go off at any moment howling unless you give them some foods. And so I don't think you need to sweat it. You do not need to buy special foods for toddlers. They will go. They do like frozen peas. I think that's a good thing. Helps them with their little gums. Um, all right, I got another question. Um, how how do you pick out wine? How do I personally pick out wine? All right, so that's a, that's a good question. So yeah, I will be at Liquor Boy from one to three, and the mechanism. I will pull back the curtain behind the curtain. This is what we do. They give me roughly a case of wine to taste, and then I just sit in my kitchen. And over the course of a week or so, kind of just taste everything. And the things that are delicious, then I say these are good. So there's no way to know what's in a bottle until you taste it. That's, you know, typically so wine is made in, you know, giant runs. So there'll be a big tanker of it. And they put the stuff from the tanker into the different bottles by the use of hoses. And, you know, the only way to know how the, the, how the stuff in the tanker tastes is to get one sample of it. I mean, that's even true with a, a well-known wine, a well-known, you know, well, a new vintage of a well-known wine. You're just basically going on reputation until you, until you actually taste it. And so, uh, the, the, the way that I figure out these Liquor Boy wines is just straight up. They hand me a case and I go through and then I send them tasting notes and I say, this one is delicious for these reasons and this one is terrible. Don't carry it. And that's how that's how we do it. Um, it is not – there's no great mechanism behind it. I find that as a critic, I got my wine critic hat on, the way it works is this. Your body tells you – put it in your mouth and your body tells you it's delicious and then your brain fills in – the details of why it's delicious. But the, the that first burst of a feeling of like, this is delicious, that's really what you're going from. And you can only do that by tasting it. That is what is in my book. Many of you have read Drink This, Wine Made Simple, my Random House book that came out oh, a couple of years ago. I met someone last night who told me that his, his book club did the chapter a month that went through the whole book. And that's really it because you will find – when you do those things that, you know, some of you will find Sauvignon Blanc amazingly delicious and some of you will find these very 
inky Malbecs. Incredibly delicious. And the only way you'll know, you know, it's kind of like the Baskin-Robbins ice cream counter. People walk up and some want a lemon sorbet and some want the double chocolate. And it's there's nothing like one is more delicious. They're both delicious. They're different. The only way you learn if you're a lemon sorbet person or a double chocolate person is to try it. And so um, I, as a critic, can sit around and go like, all of these lemon sorbets, this is the best lemon sorbet. Or all of these double chocolates, this is the best chocolate. But normal people don't need to do that. You don't need that in your life. So if you come on down and meet me at Liquor Boy, you'll find some stuff that I find delicious. And then you get to taste it and see if it matches up with you. That's what's happening. So that's the, yeah, the one in St. Louis Park by the Costco there. That's where I will be at one. All right, I got another question. Why are fresh French fries so much better than cold French fries? Um, I think it is because as it chills, the starch molecules kind of congeal and um, everything, the molecules are moving. Everything is much livelier. It is a, a more in flux situation. And then it gets to be cold, and then it's not as good anymore. I don't know. That's just a theory I made up on the spot. You got a rival theory? You can find me on Twitter. I am at Dear Dara. What are we doing next week? We are live, live, live at the Back to the 50s car show. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to take pictures of Studebakers and little red Corvettes, and hopefully you will come down and see us. All right, until then, I'm hoping you get all the good rhubarb pies all week. And I will see you next week at Back to 50s on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.